Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this evening, please. Whoops. First Corinthians chapter number three. And we're just about in the middle of a section in which Paul is explaining to the Corinthians how they should think about God's servants. And he begins with really a rather, I don't want to say broad, because he mentions Paul and or mentions himself and Apollos and Peter and Christ, and then He will narrow it down further to two, um, but he will mean all. And uh, he will go on to explain that the way that they should think about Paul and Apollos is the way that they should think about all of the Lord's servants. And so uh, let's pray, and we will turn our attention back to that passage this evening. Father... It is certainly your desire that churches grow numerically, that people are saved and they are brought into the fellowship of the assembly and that this doesn't just occur within an individual local church, but that the gospel is preached around the world and new fields are reached and new churches are planted And so certainly we understand numerical expansion is a part of your will. But it is also your will, Father, that we grow internally. That we become like trees planted by rivers of water that bring forth their fruit in their season. And that individual assemblies are strong and solid and right thinking and Help us to be like that. Help us to be faithful to preach the gospel and to see numerical increase and help us to grow in grace and knowledge. And we pray then your word would speak to that end for us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind us once again, and intend to do so regularly, <clears throat> that 1 Corinthians 1-2 really sets the direction for the entirety of the book, that it orients us as to who we are and what we are and who Christ is and what he is doing. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, God's church in Corinth, to them that are sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And uh, as I again will mention, no doubt periodically when we come to especially appropriate passages, 1 Corinthians is designed not to just address cultural issues, which is the way unfortunately it is often treated today, that we can ignore large chunks of 1 Corinthians because we're not that culture. But I don't think that 1 Corinthians 1-2 gives us that liberty that they were God's church at Corinth and we're God's church in Omaha and he is our Lord and theirs and what he said then he is saying now. And Paul has expressed his dismay at the divisions in the assembly. 
that the church is divided. And it is divided over good people. Um, This is not a good guy, bad guy division, but which good guy is a better good guy division. And Paul criticizes them for their love of worldly wisdom and their love of man's wisdom. And in a couple of weeks when we get down to the end of chapter 3, I think I'll take a moment and read it. But I got in the mail last week a flyer that the heading was, Give Your Church Some Wow. And just like we can buy, like we do, buy a, music, buy a license so that we can access music and reproduce it and sing it, now you can buy a license to the same effect for movies so that you can show appropriate segments of movies in your church for the edification of your people. And I thought, how providential <clears throat> that the world of the wisdom would, the, would show up just at that, or the wisdom of the world would show up at that appropriate time. That, that what the church really needs for some wow is to bring movies in. And the other thing I thought was, is there no end to how much of the world we're insisting on introducing into the congregation? And apparently the answer to that is none, but that's another subject as well. The church of Corinth is by this time approximately three years old. It is fully gifted. It has within its body all of the necessary gifts for the church to advance and progress both numerically and spiritually. Um, And as I prayed and as I think we know, God certainly intends for the gospel to go out and for new churches to be established and for more people to be saved, which is going to contribute to the numerical growth of the church. But all of the letters to the New Testament of the New Testament are directed to the individual growth of believers and their place within the body. And uh, so that's, of course, Paul's focus. And we want to remember that the things that Paul introduces or discusses in Corinth, and he just kind of walks through topic after topic, are representative of the kind of issues the churches have faced, do face today, and will always face. And so... What Paul says then is always appropriate. And there are times that we might wish he would be a little more specific about what he means, but I think we realize that if he did that, we might then limit him to only those areas rather than understand what God's position is and attempt to act appropriately. So somewhere around AD 52, Paul starts this church. We, of course, don't know the exact date. He is there for 18 months. Now about AD 55, three years later, he is writing this letter to them, still meeting, still viable, and yet increasingly enamored of the world's way of conducting ministry. And Paul is arguing that this is not the key to spiritual growth. And so Paul talks to them. Let's turn our attention now to verse to chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4. Paul talks about, and of course we understand that when Paul is talking, he's not just rendering his opinion, he is rendering God's opinion. And in verses 1 through 4, 
he talks about how God views them. Three years into their Christian lives. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another of, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? He keeps using that expression, carnal, carnal, carnal. Paul never gets into this, folks, but this is kind of an interesting thing, that three years into their Christianity, he expects far more spiritual maturity out of them than we might expect out of most Americans three years into their Christian walk. And I know that the analogy that the Bible uses is that new Christians are babes in Christ, but I don't think that should give us any justification to think that spiritual growth is something that should occupy two decades. Like it takes two decades to bring a human being to legal maturity. Paul doesn't write, well, you've only been saved three years, I don't expect much. Paul writes, Three years into this. And I could not. And what he means is I have, I just don't have the ability. You're, I cannot do this. I cannot talk to you like you are spiritual people. I could not do it, verse number one, because you could not do it, verse number two. I was limited by your carnality. And you are not yet able You still don't have the power. Three years in, you don't have the power to be spoken to like spiritual people. So what is is Paul arguing? What does he mean here? Well, I'm not going to get into this, folks, but there is a gargantuan, at least there was many years ago, there's a gargantuan debate here that Paul is actually carving out this kind of third category of Christianity. Or third category of people. One category of people who are just lost and they, they don't know they're lost because they don't even think about whether or not they're lost. They just think about doing whatever they want to do. And they're lost and that's the way they are and they're unbelievers. And then there are the dedicated people, the people who are just faithful to the Lord. And then there is this third category of people that they spend their entire Christian experience as safe people but living in the world, the ranks of the carnal. And I think the Bible doesn't support that. I would not endorse that. But there are people who do endorse that. And I would argue that the endorsement for it has much less to do with what the Bible actually says than it does with the fact that we've persuaded a bunch of people to call upon the Lord in a prayer that accomplished nothing and now we don't really know what to do with them because they live like lost people. Well, they're, they're the carnal Christians. They're the carnal Christians. Paul is not calling these people lost. 
Paul does that when he gets to the book of Galatians. He, he says to the Galatians, they have gone so far astray that he is afraid that they're not genuinely saved. But that is not what he's saying to the church at Corinth. He never says that to the Corinthians. What he says is, you are safe people, but I'm having a hard time talking to you like you're safe people. Because you don't think like safe people ought to think. So his contrast is between carnality and spirituality. Verse 1, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. And it's important to note that he uses as unto carnal. So here, Paul would come into the the, the auditorium of, of the church at Corinth, which was probably somebody's living room. And he would look at them, and part of him would know that these are truly safe people, and the other part of him would know that the only way he can make any kind of connection with them is to talk to them like they're lost people. And so three years in, he is still mystified that they are babes, even as unto babes in Christ. So for Paul, the great, the great mystery, how can you be saved three years and still be an infant? As one of our men said one time about somebody that used to go here, how long do you get to be a baby Christian? Now look, folks, when people are newly saved, this is the way they are. We were, let me see, I was almost 21 years old when I got saved. My wife was 21 years old when she made her profession of faith in Christ. And, you know, this was back in the late 70s, and it was kind of an exciting time in fundamentalism, and churches were growing, and our pastor approached us and invited us to the house. He was having a meeting. There were probably... 20 of us there, maybe more than that, young couples. He wanted to start a young couple Sunday school class. So he invites us all to the house. I mean, we are saved. I, 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 and you know my, you know my testimony. I, I'm an absolute pagan. I have absolutely no church background whatsoever. I know nothing that goes on in any churches, anywhere, no religious experience. Newly saved. Go to the pastor's house. You know, am terrible at small talk under the best of circumstances. Scrambling for what to say. So I asked the pastor's wife, what her sign is. What's your sign? Okay, I've been saved maybe two months. Maybe two months. We expect that out of new converts. We understand that new converts are like that. Those of you that have an ESV, it reads something like this, people of the flesh or merely human. That's the the way it's translated. Are you not carnal? This is what he's asking. Are you not still thinking and acting and reasoning like people who are just purely lost people? And what Paul wants for them then is... Right? This is obviously not a passage about numerical growth. Paul is never going to be excited about adding more people like this to the size of the assembly. He's obviously talking to them about their spiritual growth, which of course raises the question of what spiritual maturity is, folks. And, 
And in a brief expression, Christian maturity is to be like Jesus Christ. This is, this is the end result of every believer. We were saved to be made like Christ. This is the end of the goal for us. This is the end of the game. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, fully mature, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, because he's the yardstick, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him into all things, which is the head, even Christ. So spiritual maturity, which is not calculated, by the way, by how many services you attend, although I would argue that you ought to attend all of them. But that's not necessary. I mean, people can attend all of the church services and still think like pagans. It isn't about how many verses we can memorize. Although Bible memorization is a wonderful thing. But we can fill our heads with Bible verses and that never connects into living those verses or genuinely comprehending them. It's not how busy we are in a church, although you ought to be active in the assembly, but none of those things by themselves. Spiritually mature people do those things, but those by themselves do not necessarily reflect spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is going to involve things like, what are the ambitions of our lives? Who are we living for? What are we living for? What are the decisions that we make and why do we make them? What are the things that we talk about and want to talk about and why do we want to talk about them? What are the things that we think about? And why are we thinking about them? Who are we thinking about? The goal for us to be spiritually mature is to be like Jesus in word, thought, and deed. But this is not where the Corinthians are. They are still carnal, verse number 3, and the evidence is the division that characterizes the church. Ye are yet carnal, verse 3, whereas there is among you envying, strife, divisions, are ye not carnal? And walk as men, as mere men, as men only of flesh. Right? So again, folks, I, I, I am a complete supporter of participating in all the church services and being active in church ministry. But notice the way that Paul is discussing carnality. Divisiveness. Fighting over men, good men. Right? He's not saying what a fundamental Baptist pastor would say. I know you're carnal because you don't come to church on Sunday night. I know you're carnal because you don't give. I know you're carnal because you won't teach a Sunday school class. He says, we all know you're carnal because look at what you're fighting about. Look at the division that characterizes the church and the assembly. And there is envying, which can be a good thing. It's, I mean, the word is actually the word zeal, which actually means heat. 
They were passionate, and it's good to be passionate about the right things. This was a zeal that led to strife and division, and that's a Greek word that we do know because it's the word dichotomy. The splitting up. The, right? it, it isn't. And again, folks, this is, not, this is not recognizing that some men's ministry has been a great blessing to you. This is not having a favorite author or a favorite speaker. This is fighting over those people. Forming parties over them. And Paul boils it down here in verse number 4 to two men. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollo, sorry, not carnal. So let me just take this opportunity, folks, as we move away from verse number 4, to remind you that you have a tremendous responsibility You yourself have a tremendous responsibility in the realm of your spiritual development. Pause and think about this. These men had Paul and Apollos as their pastors. I guarantee you folks that if the Apostle Paul walked into this building this evening, I would not be standing behind the pulpit speaking to you. I would drag Paul up here and insist that he speak. Same thing would be true of Apollos. These had, these people had two of the premier servants of God in the world, on the planet at that time, and they were still carnal. We all have some measure of responsibility for our spiritual development. And we will get to this later, folks. Pastors are mere human beings, and they are frequently failures. But be careful before blaming the pastor for your own spiritual decline, because it may not really be his fault. Paul doesn't go, you know, I'm sorry that I let you down. And Apollos was usually at his A game, but he just wasn't when he got to Corinth. And So what can I say? You guys lose out. None of that. So in verses 1 through, or verses one through 4, Paul talks to the Corinthians about their status. They're carnal. They're carnal. And the single evidence of their carnality is that they're fighting over other men, good men. And with that then, in verse number 5, Paul begins to talk to them about his own status. Right? Here's a church arguing with itself about whether it is better to be of Paul or of Paulus. And now Paul is going to weigh in and go, well, let's talk about that. Right? I've talked to you about your status, your carnal. Let me talk to you about my status. Well, what is their status? Verse number five. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers, servants, by whom ye believed, 
even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, and you could insert there, anything, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. All right, so what were the Corinthians carnal? Well, what are Paul and Apollos? They're two things. Number one, they're slaves. They're slaves. <clears throat> We are ministers. We are servants. We came, we preached Christ because that was our assignment and you believed. I came first. I was first in sequence. That makes me the planter. Apollos came secondly. You can read about this, by the way, in Acts 18 and 19 because... Paul was in Corinth while Apollos was in Ephesus, and then Apollos went to Corinth and Paul went to Ephesus. So what are Paul and Apollos? They are first of all servants, and they are second of all nothing. They are second of all nothing. Not that their ministry didn't matter, But they were not responsible for the success of the ministry. Which is, folks, what the Corinthians were arguing. The little expression, I am of Paul, means I am out of Paul. And others are going, I'm of Apollos, meaning I am out of Apollos. And Paul is going, you guys, you guys are horrifically wrong. We're just slaves who came and preached and you believed and you believed because of God and God was the one that gave the increase. We're not anything. Verse number 8. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one. What does he mean by that? Well, we came at different times. I came as the planter and Apollos came as the waterer. But we're both working for the same master. We're both slaves of the same master. And we are going to receive rewards for our individual labor, which Paul will go on to elucidate in verses 11 or 12 through the end of the chapter. We're not just one big melted glob of cheese. We have our own individual ministry and our own individual identity, but we're servants of the same master, and the master is doing the work through us. We're not really, the, we're not really accomplishing the work, and we're serving the same Lord. You can't be out of Paul and out of Apollos without kicking Jesus to the curb. And 
And he is therefore, verse number 9, a peer of other laborers. We are laborers together with God. And he's not equating himself and Apollos with God. He's pointing out that he and Apollos are equally laboring with the Lord. And then he makes this statement that we will return to in a few weeks down the road to develop a little further. You, right? He turns his attention now at the end of verse number 9 away from himself and Apollos. He started out by saying, you guys are carnal, verses 1 through 4. Apollos and I are slaves who are really nothing. God did the work in you simply through us. We we get no credit for that. And you are God's husbandry. That word means his cultivated field, his productive field. Not a field laying fallow, but a productive field, a, a crop bearing field. You are that, and you are God's building. And you notice there in our King James Bible uses the word ye, which is the plural of you. That's not just there because it's 500 years old, but because it reflects a grammatical note. It's the plural of you. It's all of you. So Paul talks about the Corinthians verses 1 through 4, you're carnal. And I know that you're carnal because you're fighting over men and that means i got to talk about the men, and we're not really anything. We're not anything in that sense. We, we, our labor matters, and, and if we don't do the labor, we're going to answer to God for that. But you're God's work, and God has simply done the work through us. And so that means, then, that he must talk to them about God. Right? This was... this. This is the great disaster of the Corinthians and their worldly wisdom is that the ultimate casualty of their mentality is the Lord himself. And so verses 5 through 9. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We are ministers, slaves by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. The Lord gave to us, his ministers, this fruit, you. The Lord is the worker. And that was what makes verse number six true. I planted, Paulus watered. We, we, we did labor. We, we did come in and we did teach and we did open the scriptures and we did exhort you and counsel you and encourage you and pray for you. But it was God that gave the increase. I think, folks, that this is one of the reasons that earlier in the book that Paul talked the way that he did when he said, well, I don't really remember who I baptized. Not that Paul was being coy, but that Paul didn't think that way because the idea of Paul counting up converts like they were some kind of tally sheet to him was completely and utterly lost on him since the Lord was really the one doing the work. And so the increase is 
from him. The growth came from God. And that's where the, they needed to turn their attention. Again, you are God's farm. Verse number nine. You are God's building. And Paul will circle back to that imagery later on in verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> the implications of that, by the way, folks, are sobering and frightening. So this was true for Corinth, and again, because of the whole nature of the context and the nature of the letter, this is true for us. All spiritual growth comes from God. God, God appoints His servants who will teach and preach. God appoints His servants who will evangelize. But they, they, are, not, they are not the cause of the work to be done. God is the worker, and God speaks His word through His spokesman. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice. How do his sheep hear his voice? Well, we will get to this eventually, but Titus 1 tells us that from the beginning of the world, God has intended that his word would be manifested through preaching by simply the proclamation of his word. This is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved. By water, whatever is going on, it is going on in Noah's day. The word was being preached. Ephesians 2.17, Paul writes to the Ephesians and came, he said of Jesus, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off and to them that were nigh. This is fascinating, folks. Jesus has been in heaven 30 years when Paul writes Ephesians. And yet he tells the Ephesians that Jesus came and preached to them. How is this possible? Because, folks, when Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always, that wasn't just a word of encouragement and a slap on the back. He's going because he is the great worker. So everybody has a part. Everybody has a role. Paul is not suggesting that. I have a responsibility to preach, to pay attention to what I'm preaching, to be aware of what I'm preaching, to teach it carefully and faithfully and accurately. But... Anything that results from that positively is because God gives the increase. You have a responsibility. <clears throat> you have a responsibility to listen and to try and apply what is being said to your life. And by the way, sometimes to not let your emotions and your heart get in the way, but to do what the Lord instructs you to do so that we can be just like the Lord says. We have responsibility, but again, at the end of the day, folks, it is God who gives the increase. Because remember, <clears throat> whether one is on the receiving end or one is on the proclamation end, no flesh gets to glory. No flesh gets to glory. All right, I'm going to stop there this evening. <clears throat>
you have your prayer bulletin. If there's